You can't see me being a father? No. Well, I can see you fathering children. I can see you raising any. I would raise my own chalupas. Well, we're definitely not having any kids together if you're going to be calling them chalupas. It's probably your mother. You have the worst timing ever. Montgomery broken in? I'm Agent Flood with the Drug Enforcement Administration. to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever i'm zach i'm matt and this is episode number 132 25th hour probably one of my favorite movies that i've only seen for the first time in the past few years i had never seen it until you were watching it the one day and i it wasn't even on my radar i didn't even know what it was i think i came in and it wasn't that far into it and i was like what is this and you were explaining like the plot that you know it's his last day before he goes to prison and as soon as i started watching it i was just like sucked in yeah it's kind of a modern classic that has remained somewhat under the radar i did happen to see it in the theater wow although the time that you walked in on me watching it was the first time i had seen it since oh wow yeah it's a spike lee movie for those of you who don't know from 2002 it doesn't look that old. I feel like it looks very sleek for a movie that's, I don't know, yeah. 17 <laughs> years old at this point. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And it doesn't seem overly dated as far as what people are wearing. Right. There's a little bit, but not much. Obviously, there's something in this movie that time stamps it. Yes. I don't know. Like, yeah, I would agree. A lot of people don't know the movie. It didn't make a ton of money, but Roger Ebert picked it as like one of his best films of the decade for the, you know, 2000 to 2010 or 2009 or whatever. A lot of other critics did as well, yet it never really turned into that big of a cult classic. I mean, I can remember it being referenced on certain things here and there, Ron and Fez, whatever. Oh, certain sure. people yeah. like this movie. It does have a reputation, but outside of maybe the New York area, people don't really get too excited for it. Well, there's know. definitely a big piece of it that kind of feels like a distorted love letter to New York City. Yeah, so let's put this movie into context a little bit before we jump into the actual plot and everything directed by spike lee as i mentioned written by david benioff game of thrones writer that's correct it so was based I, off of his novel i remember recognizing it when the credits ran <laughs> the first time i saw it yeah he wrote the novel when he was still attending uc irvine back in 2001 it got picked up pretty quickly i think it actually was circulated through hollywood toby mcguire bought the rights he was gonna play oh yeah it. you see his name as a executive producer yeah he ends up staying on as a producer he ends up not playing the lead role of montgomery because he takes spider-man instead yeah i think it worked out for the best yeah i think you needed a little bit more toby mcguire is a little bit hard to picture yeah yeah and at coming (laughs) coming off of things like american history x like we could buy oh yeah and fight club and everything like we could buy ed Norton. norton as this dark character he apparently took all of the money he made from red dragon and put it into getting this thing made oh wow which if you would have asked me so what was came like out first script yeah i would have thought this came out before red dragon i didn't realize red dragon was that old i mean spike lee didn't have enough oomph to get it going uh well i mean you need you still need funding and producers and yeah everything i don't know i mean it was probably a lot easier back then than it is now to get right. things off the ground so the movie stars Ed Norton, Barry Pepper, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Rosario Dawson, Anna Paquin, Brian Cox, and pa- Patrice O'Neill appearance. Patrice O'Neill, oh. Tony Saragusa, shocking, yeah. As one of, <laughs> I think it's only acting performance, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I, I'm unaware of any other appearances. Well, I was looking at his IMDb, and he has stuff on there, but it's like him as like a host or right, him right. as a person it's bizarre i mean the character seems a little silly but i gotta say i mean he's he's not that bad in it yeah if you didn't know that it was tony saragusa like i don't think it would occur to you to think it was it was out of place right yeah and isaiah whitlock jr somebody that we talked about in both the wire and cedar rapids and he's still doing the same shtick as early as this right and it's still great he's just (laughs) like one of those guys where you know exactly what you want and you know what you're going to get, and you just stick them into something oh, yeah. and it works. Right. You're like, yep, this is what we wanted. As we talked about with Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans and how that, in a way, was a Hurricane Katrina movie, even though it didn't really have anything to do with Katrina per se, that kind of just took on the backdrop of the film and was kind of like a character in the film. 25th Hour has gone on to be a representative of a time period in this country that still looms large over everything and that would be the aftermath of 9-11 this movie was in the planning stages at the time of those attacks 
And as a result, Spike Lee decided not to ignore the tragedy, but to integrate it into his story. Right. Heavily I, featured at one point. Yeah, and I think, I feel like I get the impression that he felt it was wrong to just run around New York City filming a movie in that time period without acknowledging it. It would yeah. have seemed very strange. Right. Well, I almost feel like the setting of the movie being in New York City just post 9-11 it sort of adds to that feeling of dread. Five years after the September 11th attacks, Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle wrote, released 15 months after September 11th, 2001, Spike Lee's 25th Hour is the only great film dealing with the September 11th tragedy. 25th Hour is as much an urban historical document as Rossellini's Open City, filmed in the immediate aftermath of the Nazi occupation of Rome. For those of you who have seen the movie, but maybe not recently and maybe not thinking about it, that might seem strange because the movie doesn't have anything to do with 9-11 per se, kind of like Bad Lieutenant doesn't have anything to do right. with Hurricane Katrina, but it looms over everything. Yeah, it's this overhanging presence. And it kind of captures the emotional tone of yeah. the time. Absolutely. I stayed in a hotel that was right basically where it almost seemed like where Barry Pepper's, Barry Pepper's apartment condo was. apartment is. Yeah. There? Like a year after 9-11, it was like October 2002, oh, a couple wow. months before this movie Overlooking came out. Overlooking Ground Zero? Yeah, basically. And that whole scene where you it looks out into the window. Now, I don't think they were actually still i don't remember there being people like working on stuff like there are in that scene yeah it, i just remember the same look but i don't remember there actually being like construction equipment anymore at the point that i was there i, I don't remember right. but that all felt very familiar and i guess i guess it's kind of unintentional that this movie would turn into some sort of a document chronicling such a traumatic time period yet those are the things that stand the test of time because it's not trying so hard oh yeah it's well, not world trade center directed by oliver right. stone with nick cage by the way i don't know that movie's so like locked into something specific and this is more about aesthetic it's more well, about right. tone well, and it's more like, about feeling you know 9-11 is certainly mentioned and ground zero is portrayed but really it's like new york on a whole is kind of featured throughout it like it, this big melting pot with all these different people and cultures yeah because this movie while dealing with a very specific story about a very specific person it also confronts a lot of the questions that americans would have to face in the aftermath of something like 9-11 the whole idea of all these different races and cultures and types of people all mixed together and how do we feel now how who can we trust that kind of a thing which hopefully now all of these years later we've learned to deal with and there's some growth there as a country but things were very raw and different and back then i will say like a big theme to me in this movie is the idea of like things being one way and then something happens and it's just never going to be the same yeah which is kind of obviously something that happened with 9-11 but that's kind of what monty's going through and approaching yeah for sure Chaos and Collins of The Ringer, okay. of all places, oh, wrote, boy. quote, It is a, essentially a story about New Yorkers, how they think and feel, how they thrive and who they are. In the wake of 9-11, that part of the story didn't change, but for one key world adjustment, it became a movie about New Yorkers in the wake of 
Later, he would write, The city of New York, from its prep schools to its bars, its Korean groceries to its pickup basketball games, is the real star, and so is the mood. Rarely has a film so accurately approximated the raw nerve of recent history. I think those quotes accurately summarize what we're trying to say, which is, despite it not being directly about the terrorist attacks on the city and on the country, it's about the mood. It's about how we felt a year later in such a real way that I don't think people quite knew how to cope with in 2002. And I'll, get, I'll swing back to that in a second, what I mean. But first, let's talk about what they refer to as the fuck monologue, which is straight sure. from the novel. Yeah. I thought I read before that Benioff wanted to leave it out of the movie. Yes. And Spike Lee was like, no, this is the reason I want to do this movie, this monologue, or something like that. It's basically a situation in the film where Ed Norton's character, Monty, is alone in a bathroom, and he goes on this prolonged rant against all of New York City, all of the boroughs and the various ethnicities of the city. And as you mentioned, Benioff initially cut it from the script, perhaps thinking... It's hard to fit it. It's hard to make it sense on screen. Yeah. It's a little abrasive, too. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily fit with the rest of the movie, except whenever you let somebody like Lee handle it, and he somehow takes that monologue and makes it fit with the tone of the movie, and also turns it introspective, Right, where you can clearly sense that this is Monty like lashing out with all of his anger, but the anger really originates with himself. Yes. So Lee gets it reinstated. Then Disney, who owned Touchstone, who released this movie, they wanted it cut, but it was filmed nevertheless, and then Lee puts it in, and then it just ends up in the movie. Wow. I guess, you know, they gave up, or they didn't really care. Yeah. Whatever. And so it ends up being the classic moment of this movie. It happens pretty early right. in it, but it's definitely one of the noteworthy oh, things absolutely. that people remember. And that's why, when I was saying, like, distorted love letter, this is kind of like what I was referring to, because... It seems really dark, but yet also, and I mean, obviously he's saying kind of horrible things, but I feel like it also kind of just points to that big like melting pot of cultures and races and all the different people that you encounter in these different worlds, all kind of within one bubble. Yeah, and it's certainly reminiscent of some of Spike's other movies. Oh, like yeah. Do the Right Thing right. has similar moments. But it also, I think, speaks to the toughness of the city and of the people and ultimately the hope i guess even though it's it is abrasive and and i think in today's it would probably <laughs> just mostly be frowned upon and complained about today, right i feel like yeah yeah especially since a white character is saying it yes it's weird i don't know maybe it's the performance of norton in the scene but you never get the sense that it's actually coming from a place of hate it's more well, like that's what this I mean. anger yeah, right. and frustration i agree with that so what I meant was when I said that people maybe didn't know how to react to this film in the moment. Not that it didn't get good reviews. It mostly got good reviews. Some critics loved it like a lot. But it received zero Oscar nominations. <laughs> yeah, that's nuts to me. I, I, do, I just think this is like such a great movie. In a year where Chicago won Best Picture and oh, had 13 boy. nominations. <laughs> Adrian Brody won Best Actor for The Pianist. Roman Polanski won Best Director, oh, by the wow. way. Oh, wow. <laughs> this was the year that Roman Polanski got a standing ovation. Oh, no. In all of this brouhaha over this year's Academy Awards, I thought this would be funny to <laughs> go back and look at this. And I think 
ultimately my point in all of this is none of this really matters sure because it's like you can complain about this stuff every year and it right. seems so stupid in retrospect yeah i care about the 25th hour of chicago not so much yeah that's the thing the oscars have always rewarded movies that people don't care about right I think it was maybe Chuck Klosterman on a recent episode of The Rewatchables himself that said, "Wasn't isn't that the point of the Oscars is that you argue over who wins? Because he said, if Citizen Kane had actually won Best Picture, then yeah. that would change how we talk about Citizen Kane and how we talk about the Oscars. And okay. It would change the whole course of everything. Right. And it's like, yeah, they often don't reward the best movie it's happened since the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In 2002. Back into this. Well, I wanted to just talk about it. In 2002, okay. actor in a leading role. So Brody wins for The Pianist, a performance that now, in retrospect, would never win. I've, I've never for seen For a movie that would yeah. never win anything. Okay. Not Let alone be nominated for anything, because <laughs> it's directed by Roman Polanski. Right, it's true, yeah. The other nominees were Nicolas Cage and Adaptation, which- a hundred percent should be nominated and sure out of these five maybe should have won michael kane in a movie called the quiet american never seen it should not have been nominated <laughs> <laughs> daniel day lewis for gangs of new york okay i love gangs of yeah. new york i know some people aren't the biggest fans of it i think it's awesome and i'm totally happy with that being nominated well he's at least awesome in it yeah you know and jack nicholson for about schmidt which also should be nominated. Yes. So really, I can't that movie that is that old, strong. Yeah. A real strong five. I would take Michael Caine right out and put Edward Norton in. Okay. Yeah. For sure. And possibly, I would either give it to. I'd be fine with if if you switched Ed Norton for either Michael Caine or Adrian Brody, who actually won. I would almost be fine then with any of them winning. Yeah, I mean, I I could even throw out that you know I don't know what the supporting characters were like that year but i mean i think there's some pretty good supporting performances in this movie too i agree i didn't want to go too far True. into this rabbit yeah. hole of the nominees. best adapted screenplay <laughs> yeah i feel like benioff could have been nominated spike lee should have been nominated yeah. this should have racked up nominations and wins and got nothing right i think the only thing it was really nominated for was best original score at the golden globes because the score is kind of cool yeah it has a very epic distinct feel to it we're going through the 2002 oscars j just saying who didn't deserve to win in every category <laughs> that's the show people <laughs> i think the, the joke of it though is to illustrate how crazy it is to do it now right for any year yeah <laughs> so best picture chicago which won the hours which come on the pianist again come on <laughs> gangs of new york and the lord of the rings the two towers yeah Oof. People love uh, it's surprising that those Lord of the Rings movies got so much Oscar. Well, yeah, they didn't really win anything major until they won Best Picture for the third okay. one. Right. But still, still. yeah. Oof. That's a brutal five. That is a brutal five. <laughs> I mean, Chicago, The Hours, The Pianist, Gangs of New York, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I mean, whoa. Oof. This the is why Hours they, was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, wow. when you go back and you're like, well, why did they expand beyond five no nominees? And then you go, you look at years like this, and you're like, oh, that's why, because no one cares about any of these movies, really. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I just wanted to point that out, that 
in the moment, I don't know if people embrace this movie the way that they would later. Not that it has a huge, huge following now, but you see these things, these quotes that I read coming years later. I think people didn't understand how important and significant this movie was going to be for a time period because it got released in like December of 2002. So it was like right before they would be nominating things for the Academy Awards. So I don't think people were processing it as quickly as they needed to. And so now years later we can look back and be like, well, this is an important, significant movie that's way better than most of these other movies. Oh, absolutely. And yet, you know, that's how it is though all the time. The other thing watching this movie was it's hard to really remember or remind yourself that Philip Seymour Hoffman is dead. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, and I just watched that uh, Charlie Kaufman movie that he stars in pretty recently as well. Is that the Synecdoche New York one? Yeah. Yeah, I have that. Yeah, it's it's such a shame. It's been, what, like five years now? Maybe more? Might be more than that. It's crazy, but you do see that he worked with like so many awesome directors, like, oh, yeah. and he delivered all these cool performances, a lot of which you may forget about until you see it. Right. Like even just being in the, well, the Big Lebowski or something. I mean, I think he's really good in this. Yeah. He plays the role like perfectly, and it, it really like hits home for me because of <laughs> these three dudes, you know? Like yeah, you would be in love with your seventeen-year-old student. Well, no, but like <laughs> uh, these three like friend characters, like no, the, I know, yeah, the two that are like definitely cool and like don't care about getting in trouble like at all, and then he's always just like with them, kind of in these uncomfortable places. It's like that was like my whole life growing up. <laughs> yeah, there is a certain relatability to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in this movie, even though it takes on a different meaning, especially now, yeah, post Me Too and everything. And I'm not, you know, making light of what happens with him and Anna Paquin's character in the movie. However, even the way, like, that all plays out is kind of brutally relatable. Not that, like, I've ever tried to kiss a 17-year-old girl, but you know what I mean? Like, even just in normal, acceptable situations with women. What happens there is a a bad thing, a negative thing. But I think, like, the end result of it is not necessarily a bad thing. I think they both are just like, that was wrong. You hope. I mean, you don't really know what the future is. Sure. Okay. True. (laughs) For for Jacob's character. Let's get into it. Let's get into the the plot itself. Before we do, follow the show on Twitter at (laughs) GreatestPod. Subscribe on iTunes. The show's really heating up, taking it off. Absolutely. We're really pleased. We're doing better than ever. Mm, Uh, Kind of. We're almost back to doing as good as we once were. Yeah. Okay. Kind of. Yeah. We're feeling it, though. Yeah. And we're trying really hard not to take weeks off. We're really putting a lot of effort into it. So hopefully it pays off. <laughs> in some Whatever the reward some, would be for this, I, think I don't the know. The reward but. would be just somebody somewhere saying, hey, pretty good. I'm happy that those guys are consistently putting <laughs> the show out. Yeah. Just know that we're really putting a decent amount of effort into it. Yeah. Where it is impacting our lives. It's like, well, I could have done something else, but no, I got to like stay home and watch the movie and make notes absolutely it's a hardship (laughs) all right 25th hour the movie is about montgomery monty brogan and his last 24 hours of freedom as he prepares to go to prison for seven years for dealing drugs he spends this time with his childhood friends frank played by barry pepper and jacob played by philip seymour hoffman as well as his girlfriend natural rivera played by rosario dawson one of the great on-screen character names, I would say. (laughs) And they basically just spend the time partying at a club, and 
he's tying up loose ends and everything. Two things I love about this. I think I've said it before on maybe like the Days and Confused episode or something, but I do love a movie that all takes place within one day. Yeah, I enjoy fun. those types of movies. And then I, I also like, again, like this thing that kind of looms over the whole day. The idea of this being the last day before something changes and it's never going to be the same again. Whether yeah. that's like the last day of college, you're leaving a job, like something, not necessarily going to prison, but like I just always remember those days. I feel like if you're a person that kind of like is nostalgic and you know regretful <laughs> i'd be nostalgic <laughs> for that time you know when i wasn't in prison right yeah exactly <laughs> it's just like i don't know it's just those days are always significant to me yeah for sure i think the idea of a main character facing something potentially bad and the audience and the characters all being aware of it from the very beginning oh right sets up a fun tense interesting dynamic for the movie yeah. as far as watching it i mean if you were the person going to prison it wouldn't be fun but you know what i mean right like, as an entertainment value thing so the movie opens with monty rescuing a dog pretty brutal dog beating sounds like opening the movie yeah like over the logo straight out of the lobster <laughs> i don't know what this scene really represents other than maybe to make us think that Monty's like not that bad. Like he's a good guy even though he's a criminal. It's him and Costia. Yeah. Played by Tony Saragusa. Interesting that Saragusa's one acting performance is him doing a Ukrainian accent. It the is whole time. strange, yeah. <laughs> You'd think it would be what do you playing that- like a lineman. Or right. Something. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like what do you think made Spike Lee like approach this? I don't know, he probably met him somewhere. And was like can you know. do a Ukrainian accent? I mean, I probably could have looked into it. I it's, didn't really want to know. Yeah. It's a mystery, right. and I'd rather it just be like, yeah, Tony Sargusa has a pretty big part in a Spike Lee movie. Sometimes the mystery is better. <laughs> so they rescue this dog that they find on the side of the road that's been like beat up and abandoned, and he takes the dog. He names it Doyle. The dog is with him throughout. It's kind of a plot point. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. The plot of the movie is pretty much what i described in the opening couple sentences there if you just said the last straight before forward. goes to prison yeah that's the plot and there's not even a ton of action really it's a lot of different scenes of people talking to each other right there's like a couple of moments of things happening yet it almost functions as like a play i do think that the conversations help build the aura and backfill the past of these characters yeah and it also builds the tension because there's a lot of unspoken things that you gradually learn throughout the course of the film. It starts in the morning of the actual last day. We jump in time from him picking up the dog or whatever. That's the only, I guess, shot other than a couple of flashbacks that doesn't take place during this 24-hour stretch. So in the morning, Monty takes Doyle, the dog, to go see Jacob, who is a teacher at the prep school where they all met and they all went to Yes, back in the day. Jacob is teaching his class in the round. It's like a circle. It seems like it's an English class. Uh, I yes, guess. They're talking about right. Shakespeare or something. I can't remember exactly what. Yeah, I think he's an English teacher, they say it. Yeah, point. and Anna Paquin is one of his students. Kind of a crazy naval tattoo on it looks display. like a henna you think situation. it's fake? Okay. Well, you know, like semi-permanent. Like it's there for a few months or right, whatever. Right, yeah. That's what it looked like to me. Okay. It didn't look like a real tattoo. Hopefully not. It feels like <laughs> there would be some regrets there. 
And she had a belly button piercing. Yes. Interesting prep school with just sort of regular dress code. Yeah. You know? That is strange. Okay. <laughs> I think Monty tells right. Jacob, like, hey, meet up with Frank or whatever, then I'll meet up with you guys later. The whole dynamic here is just to to figure out what's going on with Jacob and this student Mary because you can kind of tell right away that he's in his typical Philip Seymour Hoffman way he's like awkward and nervous (laughs) and it's it's definitely strange sweating and she does seem I will give it up to Anna Paquin in this movie I mean she's projecting that like overly sexual high school girl that is a little bit of an outcast but still pretty kind of right She's got like a definite unique thing Has where a, she wants to be rebellious. Strained relationship with her mother. <laughs> yeah. We find no out. No father figure whatsoever. Right. I mean, it's all falling right into place. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you even certainly makes recognize com- this from your high school days. <laughs> Monty even makes the comment like, oh man, I don't know how you do it or whatever. <laughs> where like, I guess they're just young enough where you can make jokes and it's okay. not the worst thing ever now granted in 2019 this would not be so acceptable or funny to make jokes okay people would be like that's no that's fucked up or whatever you know (laughs) whatever i think they're all supposed to be like in their early 30s so it's like right yes not that that's acceptable to be interested in like a 17 year old girl especially one that is your student and all that other stuff yep i always feel like you end up having to explain this stuff for like a long time (laughs) Well, I'm just saying yeah. that, like, in this context, I think in a movie in 2002, the idea of a couple of guys in their early 30s making, like, a joke like that about a 17-year-old girl would not be the end of the world. Right. Whereas today, it, it probably would feel yeah. pretty bad. After Monty leaves, Mary, Anna Pack, when she goes to see Jacob in the teacher's lounge, and I like that shot. This teacher's Before lounge. and after she comes <laughs> yeah. in, it is a shot like through the window in the door. Even before she goes in, he's just sitting there kind of like with his head in his hands, yeah. like head down. This, if, if there was like cameras <laughs> on me 24-7, they would catch me in this pose like all the time. <laughs> just like deep in thought and anxiety. She wants her grade changed. She's, By the way, this teacher's lounge is like insane. It's like a wing of the Big Lebowski's house. <laughs> You know, I thought you were gonna say a wing of the mansion in Beauty and the Beast, or like Clue. <laughs> yeah, it is big. I it's hard to get a real sense of what the school is like. It's just like a rich prep school, but right. some students get scholarships like Monty, which definitely factors into his whole persona. Yeah, it's like he wasn't a rich kid; he came from the wrong side of the tracks or whatever. Right. Mary wants her grade changed. I wouldn't say she's out and out flirting with her teacher here, but she's definitely yeah playing a game. It seems it. I mean, she's wearing these clothes. It's like a belly shirt. I, yeah, I, I don't think girls could wear a shirt like that at a public high school, no, let alone no, this no, prep no. school. That's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Frank, meanwhile, Monty's other friend, he is a wolf of Wall Street in training, working in some sort of stocks and bonds capacity. Yeah. Not really a, a whole lot of, of explanation given to what's happening here. Based on the uh, apartment that he lives in. Probably took a big hit in 08 and jumped off of a building or right. something. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty clear, though, from just this introduction to the three of them, Monty, Frank, and Jacob, that these are three childhood friends who have all gone their separate ways. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You kind of get that sense almost immediately just by like that, what like, they're doing with their lives. Long periods of time go by without them hanging out. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. And now we meet Naturel, Monty's girlfriend, played by Rosario Dawson. Immediately, you can sense this unspoken strain, and there's this mysterious tension that builds up for a little while, and until it's introduced in a few minutes by Kostya, there's certainly this wedge of uncertainty that the audience can sense, yet isn't quite clear yet what that is, other than, obviously, we know now that Monty's facing a pretty sizable stretch in prison. Sure. Seven years. That's a lot of stress, not only for him, but for people in his life, especially... Someone he's in a relationship with. Yeah, somebody he's built a little bit of a life with, he lives with, and the, any plans they may have had are now Way up on in the hold, air. yeah. So it's it's a lot of stress, a the, lot of uncertainty. I but was, I, I think what I'm getting at is there's more than just that, and it's pretty obvious right away sure. that there's something else. Going along that, though... You know, with what the hell is going to happen with their relationship and their life together. I I was this most recent time watching it, like when he leaves his apartment at the end, I was like, what happens to his apartment? You know, I mean, he's leaving (laughs) it fully furnished. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's just going to get put on the market. I don't know what the what's going to happen with the furniture. Right. The one thing that hangs over me the whole time that I watch this movie is I just can't help but feel like it's a real wasted 24 hours for Monty. I mean, you have just an unbelievable girlfriend. Yeah, uh, natural. Really uh Rosario Dawson, a lot of woman in this movie. <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that, but I can get behind when, it though. <laughs> when she's in that silver dress. Oh yeah. Oof. Yeah. I mean, this was unintentional, but we just went from Ava Mendez to Rosario Dawson. We're just like hitting them out of the park, like one <laughs> after the other, like boom boom boom. Yeah, I mean, good lord. And I just think, like, if you had 24 hours left and then you were not going to see Natural again or be able to do yeah. anything with her, I mean, I just feel like there'd be a lot to get to in 24 hours. At the same time, though, stress does a lot to the mind, you know? It's just like... <laughs> you're, you're thinking of, like, performance issues? Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I just think, like, there'd be stuff to do. Probably, yeah. That you're now not going to be able to do. Well, obviously, though, as we find out, he seems like there's a quiet resentment going on from him. Yeah, I know, but... <laughs> it doesn't matter. If you're he, just like that ass, though. If he believes that, then break up with her. It's like, well, he isn't... Yeah. It's like a shit or get off the pot moment. Like, either do it or not. This, this like, halfway in between shit is just... Doing no good for nobody. Yeah, it's like, well, then, if you actually think that, then break up with her. And if you don't, then, then... fuck her. <laughs> fucker for 24 hours okay that's the movie <laughs> and their whole relationship though is a little creepy oh sure yeah i don't know what the age difference is supposed to be in the context of the film in real life i think there's like a 10 year age difference so okay. if you factor yeah. that into it so like when he meets her when she's still in high school right so this is the second instance of that notion <laughs> being introduced into the movie <laughs> benioff was like when I went to prep school, man, we were scooping those chicks right out, of, right <laughs> yeah, up into the pros. Right. It was like Don and Hey Min Lee, you know, <laughs> or whatever. All right, no, that was no, <laughs> way too forced. Okay, uh, so <laughs> well, all right, go ahead. I was watching the first episode of that show that they're doing on HBO now. Uh huh. Don talked about in Serial 
and he's Hayes' older boyfriend. He's 22. She's in high school. But he kind of fades from the narrative because, like, he had an alibi or whatever. But on this show, they go find him. And when he's described on uh, the podcast, it's like he's Jeff from Saved by the Bell. Just this, like, dreamy older dude or whatever. Right. They reveal on this HBO show that, like, when he was 23, he became a handicapped in some way. It's kept vague. They show him on screen for, like, a second because they go find where he lives. And he's, like, super fat, bald, has supposedly been handicapped in some way since he's 23, but nothing physical that you can see or tell. It's super weird. (laughs) Of course, I'm also thinking to myself, like, that's, like, people that I went to high school with. That's, like, (laughs) what they think happened to me, you know, when they see me now. Well, yeah, I yeah, I can fit right into that. Okay. The difference there is you're saying Don was 22 and Heyman Lee was in high school. Right. I mean, if we're talking a 10-year age difference, which is what Monty and Naturell is, then Monty would be 22 and she would be 12. Okay, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so a 10-year age difference, depending on when that is, I don't know that that's what it's supposed to be. So how movie, old though. is he when he shows up at the school? I, I don't know. Okay. I mean, maybe if I read the novel, I would know, but I, d- I haven't. So I'm not sure what they're going for other than she's still in high school when they meet. Right. And he is out of high school. Yes. Now, they never present that, though, as weird. They don't act like it's as crazy as when Jacob is infatuated with a high school student of his who's also 17. Now, student-teacher dynamic adds a whole other layer, and I'm not really comparing the two, but... I don't know. I feel like more attention in the movie should be paid to what, right. what their ages were because otherwise it seems strange. And I remember when I first saw this movie way back in 2002, that definitely jumped out at me. I was like, huh, that's strange that they're meeting in that situation. Especially because he's meeting her at the playground at school. <laughs> now, in <laughs> that know? flashback of them meeting, which we haven't got to yet, but her and her friend are definitely wearing uniforms. Right. I, that jumped out to me. So something maybe changed? I guess so. Or maybe the idea is that Mary is just out of control and she right. just does whatever she wants. Now, the friend recognizes him in that scene and was like, yeah. oh, yeah, he's my brother's age. He went to the school or whatever. Yeah, I think the idea is that he's only supposed to be a few years That's older. That's what it seems like based on that. Yeah, but still. <laughs> yeah, but still. <laughs> when you look at the actor's ages. True. And there's a 10-year difference. So she was like in her early 20s when they made this movie and he's in his early 30s right but you know i mean is, is that that different from what we see in movie relationships all the time no okay <laughs> cool hand luke poster pretty cool yeah pretty uh, cool apartment really spike lee talked about this poster on the bill simmons podcast and i guess paul newman himself owned the rights to cool hand luke at this point okay. in 2002 so Spike had to deal with him directly, and he called him up, and Paul Newman let him use it for free, and it wasn't like it, you know he was like happy to do it. And I would love to it was uh, a whole thing. It is that's like such a weird sort of I guess part of making movies and everything is this like anything that you want to include that's a real reference or a real part of something is getting the rights to to use it or mention something if it's like a, a dialogue thing, you know? Yeah. There's all kinds of clearances and different things. to jump through. Like the famous one in Donnie Darko when he's talking about masturbating to Alyssa Milano. Yes. And they got got nervous, and so they changed it to Christina Applegate. Right. You know. Who was all for it. Was fine with it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, she knew. Yeah. (laughs) So now we get a flashback to when Monty was busted. 
him and Natural are in the bath together and they're having this cutesy conversation. I do think that it's interesting, like the little jokes they make with each other about her ethnicity being Puerto Rican and he's Irish and everything. And he refers to their potential future children as chalupas and stuff like that. I wow. do think that people yeah. would be like more taken aback by that kind of for sure dialogue now yes i mean there's a lot of racial It'd be like, comments this, this relationship is so problematic he's so much older than her he's saying racially provocative things. right <laughs> you know like yeah. all that shit whereas now, it was again, a much though, simpler time even though it was post 9-11 post 9-11 but pre <laughs> janet jackson's super bowl <laughs> incident you know those are the two biggest things that have happened in the last 20 years for sure yeah, <laughs> yeah it was that little window in between yeah, <laughs> before everything changed. It was like post-birth control pre-AIDS when yes. people were like fucking like crazy. <laughs> it was that just glorious window. Right. So the doorbell buzzes and it's the DEA. This is where we meet Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Clay Davis from The Wire. And he's kind one of, of the a, DEA guys. Kind of a cocky group of police officers. Yeah. They know what they're doing. It turns out basically that the DEA knows exactly where the drugs and money right. are going to be. like, making it so obvious so that, like, he knows that someone sold him out. Yeah. And I guess to ruffle his feathers, they are definitely, maybe not so much in this scene, but later in the interrogation flashback, they are really hinting that it was natural yes. that sold him out. Monty and Nat are, like, looking at each other during this scene, and there's a lot of, like little subtle things back and forth and this coupled with the next scene which is back in the present costia tony saragusa shows up he is reminding monty to come to this specific club for that night his last night he says it's important that monty goes to see uncle nikolai i just took uncle nikolai to be like the supplier of the drugs yes now he's obviously part of a crime syndicate yeah russian crime syndicate something like that what drugs was monty selling i thought it was heroin that's what i took it to be he's talking about he's talking about selling to junkies yeah i did see in roger ebert's write-up of it he mentioned cocaine but sometimes roger ebert i think just goes straight from memory when he was writing stuff and i think he gets stuff wrong in, in his reviews sometimes yeah to me it was heroin i mean they do say a kilo at some point, which I think people associate with cocaine. Yeah. But. I don't know. Who's it's, to say? It's whatever. Drugs. Yes, those. So Kostya introduces the idea for the first time, out loud at least. Yeah. That Naturel is the one who ratted out Monty. To right. The f- well, you get the gist that he's been saying this for a while. Yeah. Because he's kind of like, man, you're st- why are you still with her? Yeah. And so basically what it boils down to is two people in Monty's life, knew the location of the drugs and the money. It was Costia and Natro. The fact that he hasn't put more, (laughs) like, I don't know, more effort into determining which of the two it was seems weird. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a lot of little questions like that. And how far along, you know, we, we get flashbacks, but there's obviously like a big gap of time missing from the movie. It's like, did he go to jail for a little bit and like post his bail or whatever i mean did he go to trial for and take a deal i mean i'm assuming since it doesn't seem like a ton of time has passed and he's taking like seven he years it's done some like yeah plea he probably took a deal 
to plead guilty because right. it seems like based on what the feds say in that interrogation scene that he's like on the low end of like pleading down to something else. Yes, yes. Since it's like a first offense. Right. So cuz he could have gotten like it's 15 to life for like the full whatever level offense. Yeah, they cite the the Rockefeller laws which are some a thing in New York. I don't really know. I'm not super familiar with what they all mean, but yeah. basically he could have went in for like a longer, way longer right. for the amount that they so found on him. They, like he pleads it down for like a sentence that's going to be like three to eight years, which apparently he ends up doing most of that. He gets almost the max sentence for that. Yeah. Which I guess you're supposed to take from it a little bit that the police are able to kind of help you out if you give them information, but he didn't. So that's probably why he was yeah. penalized harshly there. The intricacies of the court system and all of the different things like that is left pretty much up in the air and right. vague, and you kind of have to piece all of that together. It's more of just like a bottom line type movie. Yeah. It's like the bottom line is he's going to jail for seven years, and that starts the next day. Right. <laughs> That's pretty much <laughs> all you need to know. Yeah. After this, Monty goes to see his father, James, played by Brian Cox, at the bar that James owns. And it's revealed in their conversation that Monty's own drug money helped to keep the bar afloat over various times over the last few years. Yeah. And there's a lot of Irish Catholic guilt going on here. James is a recovering alcoholic. He's a widower. Monty's mom died when Monty was fairly young. Yeah. Drinking and... seemingly got his dad into some trouble. <laughs> yeah. It's the typical kind of things you associate with these types of characters and these types of stories i guess this movie appropriate timing for this with saint patrick's day we've got the irish theme heavily featured that's here. true at yeah. one point barry pepper just saying i can't get drunk i'm irish <laughs> this is when monty disappears into the bathroom for a minute and we get the fuck monologue which yes. is pretty famous i don't think we need to go into super detail i'll probably play a clip here yeah i'm gonna say we don't need to go into detail but it is a powerful scene it summarizes a lot of the anger going on in these characters and fuck you too fuck me fuck you fuck you and this whole city and everyone in it no 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 fuck the panhandlers grubbing for money and smiling at me behind my back fuck this squeegee man dirty enough to clean windshield of my car get a fucking job fuck the sikhs and the pakistanis bombing down the avenues in decrepit cabs curry steaming out their pores stinking up my day terrorists in fucking training slow the fuck down Think about getting one of those operations that elongate your penis fuck the chelsea boys with their waxed chest and pumped up biceps Going down on each other in my parks and on my piers, jiggling their dicks on my Channel 35. Fuck the Korean grocers with their pyramids of overpriced fruit and their tulips and roses wrapped in plastic. Ten years in the country, still no speaky English. Fuck the Russians in Brighton Beach. Mobster thugs sitting in cafes, sipping tea on little glasses, sugar cubes between their teeth. Wheeling and dealing and scheming. Go back where you fucking came from. Fuck the black-hatted Hasidim strolling up and down 47th Street in their dirty gabardine with their dandruff selling South African apartheid diamonds. Come on, your wife deserves this. Fuck the Wall Street brokers, self-styled masters of the universe, 
Michael Douglas, Gordon Gecko, wannabe motherfuckers figuring out new ways to rob hardworking people blind. Send those Enron assholes to jail for fucking life. You think Bush and Cheney didn't know about that shit? Give me a fucking break. WorldCom, fuck the Puerto Ricans. 20 to a car, swelling up the welfare rolls. Worst fucking parade in the city. And don't even get me started on the dumb in the cans, because they make the Puerto Ricans look good. Who's this fucking guy? Get the fuck out! Fuck the Bensonhurst Italians with their pomaded hair, their nylon warm-up suits, their St. Anthony medallions, swinging their Jason Giambi, Louisville Slugger baseball bat trying to audition for the Sopranos. Fuck the Upper East Side wives with their Hermes scarves and their $50 Balducci artichoke. Overfed faces getting pulled and lifted and stretched all taut and shiny. You're not fooling anybody, sweetheart. Taxi! Fuck the Uptown Brothers. They never pass the ball. They don't want to play defense. They take five steps on every layup to the hoop, and then they want to turn around and blame everything on the white man. Slavery ended 137 years ago. Move the fuck on. Fuck the corrupt cops with their anus-violating plungers and their 41 shots standing behind a blue wall of silence. You betray our trust. Fuck the priests who put their hands down some innocent child's pants. Fuck the church that protects them, delivering us into evil. And while you're at it, fuck JC. He got off easy. A day on the cross, a weekend in hell, and all the hallelujahs of the legioned angels for eternity. Try seven years in fucking Otisville, Jay. Fuck Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, and backward-ass, cave-dwelling, fundamentalist assholes everywhere. On the names of innocent thousands murdered, I pray you spend the rest of eternity with your 72 cores roasting in a jet fuel fire in hell. You towel-headed camel jockeys can kiss my royal Irish ass. Notice how many of what I once thought were evidences of repression. Fuck Jacob Belinsky. Sexual or otherwise. Whining malcontent. Fuck Francis Xavier Slattery, my best friend, judging me while he stares at my girlfriend's ass. Fuck Naturel Rivera. I gave her my trust and she stabbed me in the back, sold me up the river. Fucking bitch. Fuck my father with his endless grief standing behind that bar, sipping on club soda, selling whiskey to firemen and cheering Let's Bronx go, bombers. Let's go, Yankees! Fuck this whole city and everyone in it. From the row houses of Astoria to the penthouses on Park Avenue. From the projects in the Bronx to the lofts in Soho. From the tenements in Alphabet City to the brownstones in Park Slope to the split levels in Staten Island. Let an earthquake crumble it. Let the fires rage. Let it burn to fucking ash and then let the waters rise and submerge this whole rat-infested place. No. No, fuck you, Montgomery Brogan. You had it all and you threw it away, you dumb fuck! It's interesting to me because it makes me think about some of the issues people had with three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri last year. And granted, I'm not even comparing Monty to Sam Rockwell's character who's unapologetically racist in that film. Right. However, the idea that you can have characters express 
certain feelings, opinions, emotions, different things, not all of which you will want to agree with or can deal with. However, in the context of a fictional entertainment film, okay, (laughs) film, I just think that like we've really taken some steps back thanks to social media, which is a recurring theme now on this podcast is talking (laughs) about how much we hate everyone else that talks about films, but I can't help it. I just don't think (laughs) that we need our own fuck monologue for all these people. (laughs) Believe me, I've one is going through my head every second of every day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that's not really an exaggeration. I just think that granted, because it's Spike Lee, an African-American director, I do think there's a certain amount of leeway there. However, even still, there's no comeuppance for any racist dialogue in this film. It has really nothing to do with any of that yeah. at any point. And I think that's where people would have a problem with it. Is like, How can you have these kind of characters and it's never even addressed, it's never an issue? Something that Frank says to Naturel later... <laughs> Which is kind of a funny line just because it's so crazy. (laughs) That someone would say that, yeah. Yeah, but like stuff like that is left unchecked because that's not what this movie is about. Right. And that's not what Benioff or Lee or anybody involved with the film was interested in talking about because it's not what this was. Well, I mean, the dialogue of the movie does definitely imply that people make racial innuendos and comments like all the time. (laughs) I think some people do. Okay, yeah. I think it's ingrained into certain people, I guess. I don't know. I, I just think that you should be allowed to have characters like that True. And, and not have it have to be about that. And I do think like the majority of people out there don't care about this shit at all. Yeah. However, you get like that very vocal group of people who complain about Sam Rockwell's character winning an Academy Award right, or something. Right, right. It's just crazy to me. And this monologue, it is an equal opportunity offender. I mean, he basically does go after everything well, you could think of. Yeah. But it does become obvious at the end here that he's just angry at himself. Yeah. Well, not everyone picks up on things like that. Oh, okay. I yeah. mean, I think that's that's the point of all of this. Yes. Is like people can't always oh, understand no. things. You're mansplaining. <laughs> this mansplaining I mean, the fuck monologue. This is ba- well. That's basically our whole podcast. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Two white guys explaining racism. (laughs) That's the name of this podcast. (laughs) The next scene is Frank and Jacob at Frank's apartment. It's overlooking ground zero. There's this long, uninterrupted, increasingly passionate discussion about Monty's prospects in prison, his options, the future, or arguing over whether or not they're ever going to see their friend again after that night. And yet, in the background, is literally construction workers and and workers like a single American flag. And that music, that score from Terrence Blanchard is like building and building. It's like those voices, like calling out it's so epic feeling yes and there is just such a feeling of dread in the score to this movie yeah and it starts with like the 88 beams of light or whatever those things that they shoot up into the sky every year to commemorate september 11th and so that would have been i'm assuming it would have to be that footage would have had to have been from that year after yeah like the first time and turned around and made into the intro of the film right. by December when the film came out. So only a couple of months later. We get that flashback of Monty meeting Naturel for the first time. We already talked about it. She's still in high school. 
she plays basketball. He used to play basketball. Her There's friend not really a whole lot to say. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think the idea is, well, Monty was kicked out of this prep school for selling weed. Right. So this is something that people have known it about started for early. a long time. Yeah. And that definitely plays a big part in how all of the other characters act the rest of the film because there's a whole lot of built-up guilt amongst his friends and loved ones oh, yeah. because they all knew that this was happening, including his father who took money from him. Yes, yes. Including Naturell who Went embraced on his lifestyle. Luxurious vacations. Yeah, she accepted so many gifts and things. And she met him when he was already who he was. Yes, In yes. other words... She knew from day one that this was who he was. It wasn't like she fell in love with somebody who started to go down a different path. Right. And his friends, especially Frank, we don't really know about Jacob because he never really comes out and says it at any point. But Frank yeah. knew way back when they were in this prep school and that he was selling weed and that right. things were getting out of control. And he knew that. Well, he kind of makes a comment stuff. at one point that he's like, well, of course he got caught when this was happening in school. Everyone knew. Yeah. So, I mean. When you start off like that, at some point, <laughs> you're on people's radar. Frank and Jacob, they go out for drinks at this one place. This is where Jacob, for some reason, I guess he wants to get this off his chest. He confesses <laughs> it's been his, on his crush mind. to Frank on Mary. By way of the classic, my friend Terry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes it a thousand times worse. Yeah. He's like, my friend, he has this crush on this girl. Right. Although, as he's confessed, I mean, Frank is just like, what are you doing? I mean, it's like, basically, our friend is going to prison tonight. You're going to be right there with him if you pursue this. Well, uh, yeah, he goes through this whole thing. He's like, my friend Terry, and blah, 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 blah. And then at the end of it, Frank is just like, did you fuck her yet? <laughs> you know, he doesn't even entertain it for a second that it's this made-up person. Naturel shows up. They kind of have some banter. Yeah. Frank talks about what is it with girls crying after having great sex, which is pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. Because the other two just look at him. Natural looks smoking. Again, the little silver number mentioned earlier. Yeah, and that's also another underlying thing throughout the whole movie is this idea that Frank has lusted after Natural. Uh, to like, be fair, who wouldn't? Right, but... yeah. I think the idea is he's not been like very discreet about it okay. at times. Yeah. Remember that one I think it might be in the fuck monologue, but like whenever they show like natural like dancing somewhere and, right, right. and Frank is smoking a cigar and his hair is like all wild. Oh, yeah. And he's just like looking at her ass. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, Frank is a dog. I mean, you know, like yeah. I, he's Constantly, like, trying to hit on bartenders or cocktail waitresses or giving him their phone number. This was, like, definitely in that Coyote Ugly era. Because Dude, these girls in these all these places are wearing nothing. I know, it's crazy. Because even this at this, what, this is, like, the bar they go to before the club. Yes. And that girl, who I guess Frank knows and... I don't know if he wanted to, like, if he was trying to introduce Jacob to her. I'm not really sure what was going on there. But she's, like, wearing, like, almost nothing. Sure. And (laughs) she invites everyone to come to her birthday on Sunday, which which is is after. Yeah, I always felt so bad because I was like, why don't they just say something to her? Like, she seems, like, really upset. It's one of those things that just causes an awkward moment for everyone because I think they're partially trying to distract Monty from thinking about. Right. Yeah, Yeah. they're trying to just have a good night. Right. But it is like a funny scene that's just kind of thrown in there. Yeah. 
She's like, come to my birthday. And they're just like, huh. No uh. one says anything. And she's which like, I've well, been in, in those types of moments, you know. <laughs> On which With end? you, I feel like. I, I don't know. I just feel like I've been in moments where someone has said something and then it just sits out there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well. And she's just like, well, you, yeah, okay, you guys don't have to come. And then that's like the end of yeah, it. Yeah, she just walks away. Yeah. So then they go to the club. Patrice yeah. is the doorman. Patrice O'Neill, the late great. Uh, yeah, not much more to say other than I, I don't know if anybody's ever made me laugh harder in my life. Yeah, one Patrice of the funniest O'Neill. comedians yeah. ever. No longer with us, just like just Philip a, Seymour Hoffman. Just a fun, quick scene with him. Yeah, it's always nice to see him pop up in things right. uh, occasionally. Yeah. So the club is packed. There's a lot of people waiting to get in. I guess there's like this hot new DJ named Dusk that's going to be playing there. So a lot of young people are there. And it just so happens that Mary, Jacob's student, Anna Paquin, is waiting to get in. Weird to me that's mentioned through these two characters that it's actually a school night. It doesn't seem like it should be. Because, I mean, Jake stays out all night. Well, how often are you? Yeah. In one of these situations. I guess it makes sense, though, because how often would you be going to jail on a Saturday? I have no idea. I don't know what the regulations are like. Do they well, it just seems take like new... the people that like have to work yeah. that to do that stuff probably wouldn't be working on a Saturday. Okay. Because there's probably special like admissions. I don't know. True. I don't know anything about prison, yeah. thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> Although if people start listening to this <laughs> these podcasts, there's probably going to be an investigation. Right. <laughs> I don't know, should we send this to the House of Buys in the giant city of New York with has millions of people? Yeah. Does this make sense that Mary is there out of all of the places uh, she could be? I'm thinking And the no. places they yeah. go to? I think it's okay for a movie. Yeah. They're, just because they're trying to weave a few storylines into this movie, and Jake, like, there's enough going on with Frank and Monty and Naturel to weave those characters in with each other. But Jake is always kind of an outlier, and this gives him, like, another storyline. Yeah, I mean, I think the chances of this happening are pretty slim, obviously. But I guess, you know, even in a city as big as New York, you do occasionally run into people. Sure. Although the chances that you would have just told Frank this whole story, admitting to this, and then she's roped into the storyline now all of a sudden. Because now Monty, since he's a big shot, he knows the people who own the club. It's tied in with these Russian people. Yes. He can get people in. He gets They Mary have like in. their own VIP section, so there's no like questions asked or anything. Yeah. Pretty famous part here, the the champagne toast, champagne for my real friends, real pain for my sham friends. That's right. I'm sure you thought that that was a Fallout Boy invention. <laughs> I don't think I thought anything of it. What is the name of a Fallout Boy song? However, I don't think it actually originates with... It, well, it definitely does not originate with this movie. It's attributed to lots of different people, including Tom Waits, who did not originate it, and a painter named Francis Bacon. Not the old one from the 1500s, one from like the 1900s. Okay. Or Yeah, the 1900s. But I think it seems like this quote actually goes back to at least the 1800s. So it's been around for a while, but it's a pretty fun thing to say yeah <laughs> okay i like it yeah i'm good with it i did like that moment where i think mary and natural go to dance yeah frank disappears chasing after some well, girl here's the thing the waitress for their table or the server or whatever he orders a whiskey and he's asking for a certain type of whiskey and she's like it's upstairs i'll go get it and he's like i'll go with you 
Yeah. <laughs> which is kind of fun. I mean, imagine throwing that out there, too. <laughs> but it almost feels like it's implied that they fucked because he, like, comes back all, like... Yeah. But she's handing him her phone number and everything when they're walking back to the table. Right. But it leaves Jacob with Monty, and I love this, like, inability of Jacob to toast Monty because it says, like, so much. Right. Because Monty's like, well, all right, say something for me because I'm going away and blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah. And it speaks to the chasm in their relationship, the distance that's grown between them. It, it speaks to Jacob's inability to process what's happening sure. how big of a deal this is going to be because that's also reoccurred i think like frank has tried to snap jacob into reality yeah, like hey jake we're not going to know this guy this is going to be like a seven year break on the relationship and then they'll just pick right back up yeah i mean it remains to be seen i mean i don't think any of them know for sure i think frank and monty are closer in agreement on how it's going to be but even they have a face-to-face moment about it later when frank is talking about owning a bar and all that shit oh like, yeah, later yeah. On. so it's like nobody knows like they're taking the tough approach like you know this is basically the end because seven years from it'll now, never be the same i'm not going to be the same person and so much time is going to pass and your life is going to move on but jacob on the other hand is in sticking with his whole character is stuck in some I don't want to say childhood, but like some immature version of life, which oh, yeah. is why he's probably attracted to a high school student. He's not processing this like a, an adult. Like he doesn't really see it as anything that big of a deal, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like at some point in his life, he seemed to stop developing, I guess. And so why would anything change over the next seven years? And I can kind of relate to that because I'm like, well, what's going to be different seven years from sure. now? Right. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Now, this is, like, getting to the point of the movie where I look at Jake, like, more and more, and I'm like, it's like looking in a mirror, you know? (laughs) Sweating. Yeah, nothing to do with the the Mary thing, but, like, just sort of being out with people where I'm just, like, at this point, so tired, I can't drink anymore. (laughs) Like, (laughs) these cool people that hang out, like, all night till the sun comes up, but I'm just like, I need to go home and go to bed. But people will just keep being like, no, stay and hang out. And obviously he can't leave tonight. Yeah. But he's out of his element. Yeah. Then Frank finds out who Mary is and he kind of lets the cat out of the bag a little bit to Monty. But Monty's like, you know, he's not really dealing with this right now. It's like, sure. what is he going to do? So, I mean, that secret is kind of out there a little bit. I did like the shots of Anna Paquin and Rosaria Dawson dancing together. All yeah. sweaty. Quite a pair. Lots of shots of that. Rosario Dawson looks cool. real good. Yeah, when her hair gets all <laughs> disheveled. We're just a couple of pigs. This is pig talk. Well, you know. <laughs> but what can you say? That's part of the fun of movies, seeing attractive people. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't think so. <laughs> Monty and Frank go upstairs. Monty's like six months earlier. I was going to get out. I was yeah, going to come is, to you. This is that moment that I feel like it just really resonates with me. Making a decision and then just regretting it so bad. <laughs> He's like, I got greedy. I don't know. You know, I think that sometimes this is just shit people say. Right. Because in reality, he probably wasn't Never gonna, was going to yeah, stop. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't going to stop. He was making too much money. And I think you get addicted to the money and the lifestyle, but also you're afraid that if things took a downturn, where would you be? Would Naturel stick with you? Right, right. That kind of stuff. You are panicked about the false life you've built up yes and so if it starts to crack or or get less than 
you're concerned as to what that would mean. They just kind of go over some of Monty's fears. Obviously, it's brought up a lot that he's a good-looking guy, and that's going to be rough in prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is. He talks about having some big guy knocking all of his teeth out so uh, he can yeah, blow him all night. First night. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a long seven years. Yeah, he's talking about this particular prison. He's going to some prison in like Otisville, which I don't know where that is. Yeah, it must just be just outside the city or something. The idea, though, is that this prison is overcrowded, so it's a bunch of people in a big room, which, which sounds like a nightmare. seems crazy. I mean, I've heard bad things about prison, obviously, but uh, <laughs> that does seem nuts that like they would do that, but yeah, I, I guess. Know. And the idea is that like no matter what happens, I mean, even if he can get through this seven-year stretch, when he comes out, he feels like he's going to be fucked because he's never really done anything with his life. Yeah. And if he goes back to the life he went to before, it's a guaranteed 15 to life for right. a second yeah. conviction. It's like, like now he's on the radar, too, I mean. Yeah, and Frank is pitching the idea of two Irish kids from Brooklyn, like, we'll definitely have a bar. Why don't we have a bar? But the whole idea was that Frank became this big Wall Street guy to get away from that yeah. green beer on St. Patrick's Day bullshit. Right, and he's just going to keep So you know, why would you go back to this? Right. That's what Monty's saying to him. Like, seven years from now, you'll be some hotshot manager of something, you know, like you've taken further steps. You're not going to go back to, like, owning some crappy yeah. bar. This conversation ends with Monty being like, I need a favor from you, and that's kind of left hanging there. And I think, as viewers, the implication is that this is going to be some big thing. And, I mean, it is a traumatic moment in the movie, right. but when you find out what that favor is, I think it's kind of like, oh, this was it? I think I always think that it's going to be something much more involved. See, I don't know. I, the thing about Frank is, like, even though he is doing well with his life. There's something about his character that you can... Monty treats him in a way that he can handle, like, the bad stuff that Monty's involved with, even though he's not, like, a criminal or anything. Yeah. Whereas Jake, they kind of keep him out of that Jake stuff. is basically going to take the dog. Yeah. And that's really it. Right. Because Natro is going to move back in with her mother and move out of the apartment, and she can't take the dog, so the dog is going with Jake, and that's really all he's there for. Yeah. Jacob is drunk and sleepy, as you mentioned, and he wakes up to Mary crawling all over him in the private booth. I mean, this is what I was talking about earlier, where she's like playing that character, that young girl who wants to break out sexually. Like she okay. is interested in exploring that, which is kind of a common trope in these things. And like the pants that she's wearing and the belly shirt and the tattoo and the piercing and the things that she says, she talks a lot. Now she's acting all overly sexualized in an inappropriate way. I don't know if she knows or not the way that Jacob feels about her. I, I mean, I guess that she's doing this because she kind of gets a vibe. Well, and she's, and she's also drunk. And she's making maybe kind of jokes about blackmailing him about <laughs> like giving her an A in the class. Yeah. yeah. There sure were girls at my school. That you, there was at least oh, one. Okay, yeah, that you were like. And then ones that like. I think that one's dating a teacher. And then ones that like you never, nothing was ever busted. But I know at least one that like, or two that married teachers later. Wow. Okay. So it's like, yeah. well, what do you think? Right. I mean, <laughs> I feel like something was probably happening at it the time. Seems possible. Yeah. <laughs> Mary goes upstairs to go to the bathroom, and Jacob is kind of just standing there not really sure what to do and he ends up following her up the stairs it feels like this comes out of nowhere him making this brash decision that he's especially since he was like asleep bathroom. a second ago yeah. 
how drunk either of them are is not clear. He follows her into the bathroom. There's this red glow in the room, the way that it's shot. There's this sweaty awkwardness between the two of them. And he kisses her. She doesn't resist or push him away, but she doesn't really kiss him back. It feels uncomfortable. Yeah, and there's definitely, uh, I would say, like a slightly predatory vibe to it. Right, but I think that they both sort of feel that. And, I mean, I think he immediately is just like, that was a huge mistake. Yeah, and when he pulls back... She seems shocked. Her face is like surprise and also confusion. Yes. As to like, well, now what? (laughs) And he backs away and leaves the room in kind of a panic. Yes. Spike does one of his director's trademarks, which is like he'll put someone on a dolly so that they're moving but not actually walking. So it looks like he's just kind of gliding through the scene. Right. It's like a close up on his face. And that expression on his face is like hilarious. (laughs) And that's really the end of the Mary story. I I don't know who he finds first, Frank or Monty, but he's just like, we got to go home. (laughs) I think it's Frank. Mary never appears in the movie again. Yeah. And so that's left unresolved. You don't really know if she's going to tell people or what. I think the implication is that she's not supposed to be at this club and drinking and all this stuff, so she's probably not going to say anything, but he's probably just going to give her an A. Yeah. (laughs) And that's probably going to be the end of it. Right, exactly, yeah. (laughs) Fucking last 10 years, I've been watching him get deeper and deeper. And with these friends of his, these fucks who you wouldn't want petting Doyle. And then I say, hey, careful, Monty. You know, you better cool out, man. I didn't say shit. I just sat there. I watched him ruin his life. And you did too. All right, we both did. We all did. Monty never listens. Uh-huh. You know how stubborn he is. Okay, I told Monty he, he should quit a hundred times. Did you? Was that before or after you moved into his apartment? Look, huh? come on, of all nights, please not today. Just don't start. We'll pay for the apartment, naturally. I need a drink. JD, shot. Is that before or after he gave you that platinum necklace? You want to watch your mouth? You paid for the Cartier diamond earrings. This silver dress you're wearing, paid in full by the addictions of other people. Back That's up. what I'm saying. You two fly down to San Juan, first class all the way. What do you think paid for Puerto Rico? You've never been to P- you Listen to me, you've never been to PR in your life before, Monty. You told him to quit the hell you did, Natural. You knew the deal the minute you met him. Come on. Why, you never had a real job in your whole life. You've been living off the fat of the land, and you never said a goddamn word. Who are you to get all righteous with me? Huh? Did you disown him? You're his best friend, and you never said a thing, but this is my fault? I'm the evil one. But I never took his money. Never once. Not a red How long have you been saving this? Huh? I came over here to talk to my friend Francis. One minute ago, you were my friend. Are you drunk? Tell me you've been drinking too much, you don't know what you're saying. You're fucking drunk. I'm Irish. I can't get drunk, all right? I know exactly what I'm saying. Seven years from now, I'll be at the prison gate, and you'll be married to money, right or wrong. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? You want me to be the bad guy? Fine, I'm the bad guy. Are you happy now? Francis. All I'm saying... You knew where he hid the money. You know where he hit the drugs, didn't you? What the hell are you saying? 
What the hell are you saying right now, Francis? You know exactly what I'm saying. I told Monty when he first met you. They wouldn't listen to me. I told him Natural Rivera. She ain't nothing but a spick skank skeezer. The big confrontation between Natural and Frank. Monty's girl and his best friend, I guess, at least from his past. Yeah, yeah. They do reference several times throughout the film that Monty has these new friends. And the implication is that it's like Kostya and these Russians and Ukrainians. But, like, you never really meet them other than Kostya. I mean, you see those guys. When he's talking to Frank, there's, like, two guys that just sort of walk by real quick and they make comments to him about going away and everything. I mean, I I just kind of assume this whole, this greater Ukrainian gangster group are these new (laughs) friends, you know? Now, his girlfriend and his best friend, a lot of guilt and, I guess, A lot of realization has gone on tonight and some emotions are about to run high. Yeah, and they're counting down the minutes now because presumably it's pretty late now yeah. and everything's coming to a head. Frank it must starts be like close to the club, like closing down and everything because it's not much longer after this that it's like six in the morning, so. Yeah. So Frank starts pushing this all onto Nat. It gets real tense and weird about who didn't say a thing as Monty destroyed his own life. There's this back and forth. At first, it's kind of like Frank. It's kind of like Frank confessing these things, but yeah. then it's it morphs into him pushing it onto her. Like he's <laughs> like, "This is my fault. I could have stopped him so many times, and I never did." And then it's like, you know what? Actually, it's your fault. It's like you knew the whole time. You went to Puerto Rico. You never went there in your life until you met him. Right. Who do you think paid for this necklace and this dress and this apartment and blah, blah, blah. And her response is like, how long have you been waiting to say this? Like, he's just unloading all of this shit. And they're doing like this very interesting. It's like kind of a cool thing that they're like able to do this scene that's like really tense and emotional. But they're doing that like whisper yell thing yeah yeah because not really yelling at each other in like full voices right <laughs> which i always love that like the whisper yell in movies yeah eventually frank puts it on the table about it's like when you're her... breaking up in a restaurant you know <laughs> you do the whisper yell at the table i i, I, I never perfected the whisper yell yeah. it's just a full yell <laughs> so frank puts it on the table about natural ratting money out which is the first time that she's been confronted with it directly in the movie and you wonder has this crossed her mind that this is what people think yeah to this point because you don't know and then eventually frank crosses the line <laughs> and she slaps him and leaves yeah <laughs> he he does call her an ethnic slur among other names and sort of a ridiculous one <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean whoa yeah so then as she's leaving, Jacob then wanders in with his sad sack, and he's like, I kissed my high school student. Frank, we that gotta whole go. bullshit. Yeah. Frank makes an R. Kelly joke. And this is 2002, people. <laughs> and we're still... It's 15 years, or 17 years. We're still this. dealing with this, as now R. Kelly's finally maybe going to face the music for all of this. This okay. was that long ago, right. and people were openly making a joke in a movie. That everyone gets. Yeah. I mean, this is crazy that this is still playing out now. Right. And again, this is one of those things where, like, Frank is just, like, still ordering whiskey. He's making Jake drink, but Jake's like, I can't drink anymore. (laughs) Yeah, definitely relatable for you. Yeah. 
probably not so much to me anymore because I never leave the apartment. Right. <laughs> Monty goes to see Uncle Nikolai. He's just this generic I, Russian gangster. I do think this is kind of a cool scene, though. I mean, obviously something big happens with Kosti here, but I enjoy Nikolai's little stories about prison. Yeah, he first went to prison when he was 14. Right. And by the time he got out, and he went to kiss his mother. She screamed because she didn't recognize him. But I like his just a, great stories. Yeah, and he's just like, you know, I've been to three prisons in three different countries. And he's like, do you know what I learned? Prison is not a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, because you think he's going to say prison in America is so much better than right. prison in Russia or prison somewhere else. But he doesn't say that. Yeah, yeah. Even though I think you could probably assume that it is. Right. But still, it's he's not minimizing what's going to happen with Monty. And there's definitely like a turning of the screw here, threatening Monty's father. I think they're they, covering their bases because they want to make sure he's yeah. not said anything. Right. Even though there is a deleted scene where some other guy is explaining it to Nikolai and his henchman guy that like there's no way that he talked. Like Yeah. Because they wouldn't have let him out on the street if he talked because they knew he would be killed and they wouldn't have you would have already been arrested and he wouldn't be getting seven years blah 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 blah. right right there is a deleted scene where somebody is laying it out like there's just no way that he talked okay. and they seem to buy it but they cut that scene out so in this sequence you're meeting these heavy hitters for the first time well, it does seem like not even necessarily threatening his father it does i do think there's something real to the pitch of like well we'll take him in he'll work for me i'll pay him it, but it's kind of all under the understanding that you do the full seven years and never, if you flip on me. Right. Well, the, I think when they first are saying like where the address of the sure. bar okay. and what kind right. of car he drives right. and how many miles are in the car, yeah, like yeah, they're yeah. basically like, we know everything about you. If right. you do anything, we know how to get to yes. you. Although you would think they would threaten Naturel first because, I mean, Monty's father's old. Well, they just think the same thing as Frank when it comes to Naturel. <laughs> Rivera, you know. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> so the big surprise of this scene is that they hand Monty a gun and they're like all of a sudden out of nowhere they start beating the shit out of Costia who's been standing there the whole time and they're like he sold you out. They hand Monty this gun. They want him to kill Costia. Nikolai Costia's real uncle, you think? Or is that just some sort of uh, I, he, he I says uncle Nikolai I think a couple times. Yeah, I I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I call him Uncle Nikolai because that's what he's referred to. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if yeah. that's just like his name or if All that's, right. I don't know. In the end, Monty won't do it. He doesn't kill Kostya, although it's kind of left vague as to probably I, I'm sure they these killed other guys him. are. I mean, so Monty's whole thing is like, do whatever you want with him. It's an interesting. But I'm done. It's an interesting part here because he says to Nikolai, you told me to trust this man, I trusted him. So it's weird because I don't think he ever would have thought that the relationship was between Monty and Nikolai first. I would have thought Monty and Kostya first. Yeah, I mean, the ins and outs of whatever the crime thing they were doing and involved with is kind of, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I think you kind of get the basic idea. And now Monty's announcement to the room is like, you do whatever you want with him, but I'm out of this. Right. And once I do my seven years, I'm not coming back. Like, this is, we're done. My father's done. Don't, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they're not Fair like deal. happy about it, but they don't really stop him or anything. Yeah. It's like, whatever. So the three main dudes, Frank, Jacob, and Monty, they head back to Monty's place to get the dog to give to Jacob. 
it's now getting light out. The night is coming to an end. Naturel is laying there in their bedroom, all sexy. <laughs> and now he knows that it wasn't her. Yeah. And it's like... Still doesn't. Only a few here. hours yeah. now. Right. It's going to be a while, Monty. I mean, God it's gonna damn be it. a while. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole like list of things you could do in this time period. But whatever. <laughs> <laughs> He's got this whole plan now of what he wants to do, which is really dumb. It seems his plan seems significantly worse than spending a couple hours with Naturel. Yeah, a lot worse. Yeah. <laughs> Especially like now that he knows that it wasn't her, I feel like it changes the whole dynamic because the, the idea is, I guess, since he didn't ever confront Kosia about it, is that he did kind of believe it was her, but like yeah. was such a pussy that he wasn't going to break up with her or do anything about it. Right, but he must have thought it was her that well that's yeah i mean that's the only option. like he didn't really consider it to be cozy at all and so now this huge weight is off his shoulders and now he knows it wasn't her and their relationship is pure and it's like i don't know i feel like he needs to make it up to her more here yeah and he doesn't really because she's like stay with me and he's like i gotta do something else first <laughs> yeah so instead of spending his last couple of hours naked with his hot-ass girlfriend, Monty takes his dog out with Frank and Jacob. It's now completely light out. And this is kind of a weird part because Jake and Frank have no idea where the hell they're going and what they're doing at this point. I guess they're just kind of like, we're just going with whatever this dude wants to do. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the idea is that Frank knows that he's going to be asked to, for a favor. I don't know. So they go and they look at like this tugboat on the river. Then they go underneath this bridge and Monty's like, he says to Frank, like, I need you to make me ugly. And this is the favor. And he wants Frank to like punch him a bunch of times in the face yeah, like, and like beat, beat the, the shit, shit out of him. him. So he'll be ugly and that he can get an advantage in prison. So he won't get like raped the first night. Buy and him he some can... time to get some schemes going, make some political connections. <laughs> Will this plan Hopefully, work? Fingers crossed. Yeah. This never happens for me. I just right. think like if you're resorting to this, it's like just kill yourself or R try to run. Sure. I yeah. mean, what what are you doing? This sounds so horrible. Right. <laughs> and there's definitely a lot of resistance on Frank's part. He doesn't want to do it. It's a very emotional scene. Well, yeah. What what it takes to get Frank to actually do it is yeah. I mean, Monty's got to like attack Jacob physically. Yeah, which is just seems like kicking a dog or something you know it just <laughs> seems like yeah it's rough yeah. he's insulting him he's saying all this shit about how he wants to fuck natural yeah about how much he wants to do this because Monty's like fucked up his life and i deserve this and eventually like there is all this like build up rage and frustration that comes out of frank and he does beat the shit out of Monty's face eventually Jacob has to like pull him off. It's like this big emotional catharsis for the three of them. Right. And Monty's face is all beat to shit and he stumbles home. Natural meets him on the way. She's like, what the fuck? Frank distraught after this. Yeah. Frank down. is the one that has to be comforted yeah. by the other two, even right. though Monty's face is all fucked up. I like that Monty, his character in the novel has a widow's peak and, Edward Norton doesn't have one, so he wore, like, a fake one. Oh, okay. Yeah. On his head the entire time right. for this movie. Wow. But it looks good. I mean, yeah. it looks real. So the idea is Monty's dad, James, is going to drive him to the prison. So that way, James knows where the prison is for visits. 
the idea, I guess, is that Monty doesn't want Naturel to come to this prison ever. Yeah. He, like, says to her, like, don't ever visit me. Move on with your life. Right, forget about me. <laughs> it's just so, like, overly he emotional. He doesn't really have, like, a, a long goodbye with her either. No. He's just sort of like, see ya. I know. I mean, it's so She's, like, throwing it out there, like, I'll wait for you. I don't care how long it takes. He's just like, just see ya. I get, like, that being overly dramatic. Like, that feels right and feels just makes sense like woe is me yeah that kind of bullshit sure but like the no sex i mean i don't know well not even like like he'd be like burying his face between her legs like anything (laughs) like just to have something like there's nothing going on here yeah it just seems crazy to me yeah i mean i can understand not being in the mood at this point i guess i can't relate to being with someone like naturel so well sure i don't know what that's like yeah from an outsider's perspective, I would assume you're never not in the mood. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fair stance. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, you get tired of it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like right after he gets beat up, I'm like, and he's walking away back to his apartment. I feel like the movie's basically over. But <laughs> we really it was like, really like 10 or 15 minutes yeah. left. Okay, so he gets in the car with his dad and... I do love she's like, wait, 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 and like fills up the bag with ice. And then as soon as she shuts the door, he just dumps the ice. She's not. He lets both his dad and Naturel basically think that it was the Russian dudes that did this. Yeah. He doesn't say anything because he doesn't. I mean, I get it. I mean, he doesn't want Naturel to think of him being raped in prison. Yeah. I mean, she's not dumb. So I'm sure in the dark parts of her mind, she understands that that is a possibility, but he doesn't want her like openly thinking about it now. And he doesn't right. say anything to his dad about it. But they're on this drive, and his dad's like, just give me the word, and I'll take a left turn. And he's like, what? He's like, well, just keep driving west. And I love this, because it comes oh, out of nowhere. I know. Where you're just like, what? And it goes into this extended fantasy sequence. And there sequence. is something just very, like, almost sweet about it. That like, I mean, Edward Norton is just like, dude, you're crazy. They're going to take your bar. This will, like, ruin your life if you did this. And he's like, I don't. you think I care about that? Like, you think I care about that more than my only son? <laughs> my only child? So Cox talks. He narrates this extended... Oh, what t- turns out to be a long sequence. Wonderful fantasy of driving out west, of Monty starting this new life in a desert town somewhere. And how great does it sound? Under a different identity. Yeah, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. We're... <laughs> It's crazy because this movie's only seven, well, not quite even 17 years old, and yet it does somehow seem conceivable in 2002 that you could have done this, right. and yet now it's like, I just can't imagine it. Yet, there probably still are like little desert towns like this where if you knew the right things to say and do, you probably could do this. Um, people do do this. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes you get caught or you get found if you're running from something specific. It does seem like, yeah, it would be so easy to be found. But I guess it's just like, I mean, there's so many people in the world. At a certain and, point, like, police just, like, move on, I guess. Well, plus he makes the point. People get James, caught when they it, come yeah, home. Yeah, you get, I mean, what are they going to send people all over the country looking for him? For I mean, just some random drug dealer, yeah. Yeah, Who there would be a warrant out for crazy. him. And if he did anything that popped up. Like, he if he caught. used a credit card, yeah. if whatever, you know, if his license or what, or if he got arrested somewhere and they found his identity, you know, if something happened, then yeah. But, I mean, what, what are they going to do? They're, he's not, like, a mass murderer. They're not, like, um, there's no active manhunt for somebody like right. this. 
it'd be like a needle in a haystack. I mean, what, what are they going to do? We see this whole progression over this fantasy of him getting this job, of him working for cash, of him getting a fake ID, of eventually sending word for Naturel to show up. They start having kids. They have grandkids. I mean, it's like right, this right, whole right. fantasy that yes. goes on and on and on. And you're like, is this real? Is this what's happening right now? Yeah. What do you think of the fake future family? I don't know. It's kind of a weird looking crew, <laughs> you know? I don't really remember. I, it just seems like the the boys are very manly. <laughs> <laughs> what a weird observation. You get a job somewhere. A job that pays cash. A boss who doesn't ask questions, and you make a new life, and you never come back. Marnie, people like you. It's a gift. You make friends wherever you go. You're going to work hard. You're going to keep your head down and your mouth shut. You're going to make yourself a new home out there. You're a New Yorker. That won't ever change. You got New York in your bones. Spend the rest of your life out west, but you're still a New Yorker. You'll miss your friends, you'll miss your dog, but you're strong. You got your mother's backbone in you. You're strong like she was. You find the right people and you get yourself papers. A driver's license. What's your name? James. James. Not from around here, are you? No, I'm from out west. Well, let's go ahead and get your picture. Still, give me a smile. Okay. Just give me a bigger smile, James. Big, bigger. Okay. You forget your old life. You can't come back. You can't call. You can't write. You never look back. You make a new life for yourself, and you live it. You hear me? You live your life the way it should have been. And maybe this is dangerous, but maybe. After a couple of years, you send word to Naturel. yourself a new family and you raise them right you hear me give them a good life money give them what they need you have a son maybe you name him james it's a good strong name and maybe one day years from now long after i'm dead and gone reunited with your dear mother you gather your whole family together and tell them the truth who you are and where you come from together you tell them the whole story i was arrested and then you ask them if they know how lucky they are to be there. All of you. It all came so close to never happening. Came so close to never happening. This life came so close to never happening. 
the first time that I saw this movie, I was like, is this real? Like, I definitely wasn't sure what to make because it went on and on and on. It was so detailed. They even have a little bit of, like, makeup and aging process done to Edward Norton and Rosario Dawson where they look older. And you're like, they put so much time into this. And they obviously filmed all of this shit somewhere other than New York. Oh, yeah, yeah. All across the country. Okay, this seems maybe like this is a realistic thing, even though it's just a narration right now in this car ride. But when they cut back to the car, I think the idea is that they've passed the last the left turn, turn. Yeah. that they were talking about right. and that they've just continued on to the prison. And that's where the movie does end. Yes. So the oasis of this fantasy was just a mirage. There was no reality to it, at least from what we can tell. Just a bleak... If this was real, Monty would be out of prison by now. Okay. <laughs> I, I would be curious as to what happened to all these characters. Unfortunately, Philip Seymour Hoffman passed away, so couldn't really do like a follow-up. Not that that would ever really happen or make hour. sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely do episodes, some for you, some for us. This is, yeah. feels like one for us, because I, I don't so. think yeah. there's a huge following for this movie. No. Hopefully, people but will seek is, it out. I think this is a great movie. I would recommend this to anyone. This is definitely like an A-plus movie. It's one of my favorite Spike Lee movies, for sure. It's one of my favorite movies from this time period. Oh, absolutely. I was like a freshman in college when this came and out. And I know we talked about it at the beginning of the episode, but it's just it doesn't feel that old to me, even though like... I mean, we're pushing it being a 20-year-old movie, which is kind of crazy. I know. Well, this speaks to everything we always talk about yeah. with time. I know. It's like if you were born in the late 90s and now you're like 20 years old, this movie probably feels like it's from another era. Well, that's the thing. Because you were like not aware of it until you were way older. Right. But like I remember when this movie came out and I saw it in the theater, good old waterworks. Wow. Yeah. Where I used to see a lot of right. things. I did notice like uh, Brian Cox when he was driving in his car – the old New York state license plates, which that was the license plate that they had there when I moved from there to Massachusetts. (laughs) And I mean, I think since I had come back from Massachusetts, they've changed the license plates at least twice. Yeah. So that, that stuck out to me as being old. But, but besides that, I mean, it mostly feels like a current movie. All right. So, uh, I think that'll do it for 25th hour. Hopefully the people that haven't seen it, will check it out, seek it out. It's worth it. It's one of those underappreciated gems. And happy birthday, Alexander Daddario and Isabel Huppert today. Wow. Both of my wives having birthdays. How about that? (laughs) Two of the all-time great beauties. 33 and 66, I believe. Okay. So half. (laughs) So there you go. All right. That'll do it, and we'll see you next time. Watching the days burning out like a cigarette. Just a few drags to go. You built me up and you broke me down somehow. Everything just seems so clear to me. Nothing left to know. I love you right and I love you pure right now.
so easily torn from the core I blushed the first time but you blushed the last time my eyes in your mind regenerated these feelings of hatred I long for your love evermore you built me up and you broke me down this time Freddy Krueger, like the fact that he was touched by, if he has a scene where, I'm sorry, I, I, I come in your dreams, man, I, yeah. they burn me up, and I, I, I had an addiction that I couldn't control. Nigga! <laughs> <laughs> Put your, your glove knife on and fucking kill a motherfucker! I want to hear your fucking problems! <laughs> Bitch, motherfucker! I don't want Jason going, look, I drowned, they killed my mama, what would you do? Right. <laughs> They killed my mama. What would you do? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Stupid camp kids weren't looking, weren't watching out for me. I, I drowned. I drowned. I was sitting there just in the lake. and She chopped my mama's head off, man. <laughs> yeah. What, what would you do? And you go, you know what, Jason? Go do your thing, man. Go do You're your right. thing. 